Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and is this a podcast I see before me? Come, let me record thee. <laughs> Joining me today is Devendra Hardawar. Out, out, damn spot. And that's why I use Pretty Litter Cat Litter to avoid those messes. <laughs> and also Caroline Sita, whose work can be seen at the AV Club and Fox Digital. Caroline, welcome back to the Filmcast. Thank you for having me. And I will also say Dunsinane Hill, more like Denzel Sinane Hill. Wow. I, I want really to take on best role here. An yeah. inauspicious start <laughs> to Caroline's instant. <laughs> Listen, I needed to bring a deep cut theater reference choice to prove my credentials. That was wow. my goal here. So, Caroline, in the pre-show, you has you have acknowledged that you actually came up with a few different options for your mm-hmm. intro statements. So, I can, did. Can I, hear, can I hear what the if that was what made it to the end? I'm so curious <laughs> to hear what the rejects were. Okay, you can see if these are better or worse. I had I was really panicked. Someone was going to take mine, which really I don't know why any of you would have. But the other things I came up with were a drum, a drum, Denzel doth come. Wow. Okay, I, I like good. that. Pretty good. <laughs> By the pricking of my thumbs, something Cohen this way comes. It might be in my delivery that's really throwing these off. <laughs> now, this one, maybe I'll end with this one because it's perhaps my biggest stretch. <laughs> As the Eurythmics once said, weird sisters are doing it for themselves. Wow. Nice. Uh, you're really, I mean, you're those, trying really those hard. Those are all here, winners. So, yeah. Yeah. They're, I, those are, great. Those are yes. all winners. Thank you so much. <laughs> Well, welcome back to the podcast, Caroline. And I think listeners can already tell they're in good hands when it comes to <laughs> the podcast. Okay, so uh, folks may have noticed that Jeff Kanata uh, is not on the podcast this week. Um, I do want to acknowledge that he is not feeling well. Uh, he has a breakthrough case of COVID-19. Um, there's a few things that I want to share with you about his situation. Um, he had two vaccinations plus a booster. Uh, he's pretty sure he got it from his kid's school as they've had a huge number of cases, but uh, they didn't have any choice but to send the kids to school. So, uh, so far, both uh, Jeff and his kids and his wife are doing OK. Um, and Jeff himself is feeling OK, but he's like very low energy, a lot of fatigue. He's just trying to recover as quickly as possible. And he is isolating from his family, uh, which is very difficult. So, um Jeff has been a very careful person and, you know, it still happened and yeah. we all wish, Jeff especially for recovery. parents yeah. of school children, like yeah. it, it, nothing, there is no choice, right. Other than deciding to homeschool your kids all of a sudden, you know, and right. end your career, like it is rough out there. So, yeah. yeah so we wish it. Jeff the best. Um, please do feel free to send Jeff some of your well wishes uh, and you know, message him on on uh, Twitter, or uh, if you send any emails, I'll be sure that he gets them. But yes, um, uh, we hope that Jeff has a speedy and safe recovery. He tweeted about the situation earlier. He's extremely grateful to have been double vaxxed and boosted. Uh, his situation probably much more challenging without that. So get vaccinated, folks. Stay safe out there and uh, be careful. And we are hoping to welcome Jeff back to the podcast as soon as he is able to uh, come back on, uh, which hopefully will be next week, but we'll see. So anyway, that's the situation. And we're so grateful that Caroline has uh, has agreed to, to fill in this week, Caroline. So 
thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. It's been it's been great to. Uh, I mean, so far, even the last four minutes, you know, <laughs> we've already reached new heights in the podcast. I did wonder. You did you did let me know in advance that Jeff wasn't going to be here, and I was like, I wonder if I should prepare a limerick in his honor. But it felt like that might be too much of a of a step here. <laughs> I would never prevent someone from preparing a limerick. So next time, uh, next time, next time, next time. All right. Well, anyway, you can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. You can always support the podcast at patreon.com slash film podcast. We're going to talk about some what we've been watching. We've got some weekly plugs. And this week, we're going to be reviewing The Tragedy of Macbeth, which is streaming right now on Apple TV+. Okay, let's get to what we've been watching. Caroline Sida, what have you been watching this week? Well, I'm in sort of a weird lull where the end of the season madness sort of just wrapped up and I'm preparing to head into Sundance madness in the next couple of weeks. So I've sort of been in a weird, a weird lull of, of what I've been watching, mainly just YouTube and figure skating. But in between there, I um, finally watched Don't the Look Up. The two genders. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Those are my two, the two uh, wolves that wrestle inside me or whatever it is. <laughs> but yeah. what I did check out recently was Don't Look Up. Uh, the Adam McKay Netflix movie, which I did not love. I know you guys did a whole episode about it, so I won't go too long on it. I I mostly just wanted to say it was a very surreal movie to watch the day that I also watched the Kamala Harris interview where she told people that need COVID tests to just Google it. Yeah. That was like quite a (laughs) mindset to be in and watching a satire about the end of the world. I didn't love the movie. I I it takes some bold swings in its final third that I appreciated for the most part. It didn't quite work for me, but I actually wanted to shout out to you guys for your episode on it because I think listening to that really helped me clarify why the movie is so divisive. I think that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this was sort of a point that I think Jeff ultimately landed on with like, it sounded like to him the movie really played as like a very funny laugh out loud comedy and sort of like a political satire second. And I was really missing the like comedic connection. So it was sort I, of playing I wish it was more, funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would help. It was playing to me more as like, you know, very blunt satire with mm-hmm. light comedy sprinkled throughout. But like hearing Jeff talk about how much, how funny it was for him. I was like, oh, I completely get why if that's how the movie plays for you, it is a successful movie. So that was like a very helpful conversation to listen to for like understanding why the responses have been so polarized. Yeah, I did yeah. want to. I did want to clarify something. So we got a lot of positive feedback about last week's "Don't Look Up" episode, and I'm, I'm grateful to have it. it. It was a heated conversation, you know. And I think that that's one of the things I enjoy about this podcast is we often have like extremely heated, intense debates. But then at the end of the day, you know, I, I think on some level we all understand it's it's not really personal. Like we all, you know, every week we come back, we do the show again, and. Uh, it feels like a reset every week, Absolutely. you know, because go, go back just, and watch clips of uh, Siskel and Ebert and how they would just like eviscerate each other <laughs> over really dumb movies too. Like yes. they would just get really, really pissy with right. each other. So like we, Carnosaur, we never get to that level. you know, yeah, a movie that I think uh, Ebert really loved. Anyway, um, so so yeah, I, I think that uh, th- that's one of the things I appreciate about the podcast is that we can have extremely intense, heated debates about things and still just come back and and do it all over again the next week. So. Um, thanks for listening, Caroline. Thanks to all the people who shared like very, very kind feedback about that. But I do think that I'm glad we had the conversation because it really encapsulates how 
polarizing this movie is. Like, it, it is a great encapsulation of the fact that like mm-hmm. people have argued really intensely about this film and and have strong reactions to it. And I don't think I don't think like our reactions were atypical in any way. So, um, so it sounds like you didn't enjoy it that much, but maybe still found some value in it, Caroline. Yeah, I would say I didn't have a terrible time watching it. Like, it wasn't a movie that like made me angry while I was watching it. It more mm-hmm. just didn't quite work for me. All right. Well, I'm glad you weren't seething with rage while you were watching <laughs> Don't Look Up, uh, which is streaming right now on Netflix. Uh, Caroline, what else have you been watching this week? Yeah, so I know I feel like you guys usually highlight sort of newer things on here, but one movie I watched and loved recently is Roman Holiday, <laughs> the 1950s rom-com with Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> um, you know, if you want a really current, up-to-the-moment plug, there's one for you. Yeah, uh, you've got I, the thumb on the pulse of culture exactly. right now. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I really like to have the timely references here. Uh, I write a column about romantic comedy, so I'm frequently thinking about the romantic comedy genre. And I just feel like Roman Holiday is really one of the best. Like if you want sort of sweet, poignant, thoughtful escapism with beautiful vistas of Rome and like lovely performances from Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn, like if you just kind of want to escape the world a little bit, I would so highly recommend seeking out Roman Holiday. It just holds up so well and has one of my favorite rom-com endings of all time. I just think it's <laughs> such a lovely film. A couple questions, Caroline. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, where can people find this column? Mm, it's for it. the AV Club, and it's called When Romance Met Comedy. And how did you watch Roman Holiday? I believe that I rented it. Got it. So it's available on v- VOD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you think makes Roman Holiday one of the best romantic comedies of all time? Like, what makes something a superlative romantic comedy, in mm-hmm. your opinion? I think that Roman Holiday is incredibly simple. It is almost like a silent film at times. It's the story of this princess, the sort of European princess who decides she just wants a normal day out and so poses as a regular person and meets up with this uh, journalist played by Gregory Peck who secretly knows she's the princess and is trying to sort of get gossip on her and and they sort of have a day, almost like Aladdin style, like a day out with the the young humble guy and the the hidden princess. And I think it's just an incredibly simple movie that almost functions like a silent film. Like so much of the character arc is just coming across on the actor's faces. And I think the simplicity lets it get, get to very like poignant places. And it's not a movie that's like, we have this big massive blowout and then somebody runs to the airport and then it's, you know, hitting all these like annoying cliches of the rom-com. I would say it's like elevating the good sort of tropes of the rom-com and, I just think Audrey Hepburn is such a phenomenal actress and sometimes doesn't get credit for that because she's held up as this like fashion icon or this Mm -hmm. sort of just celebrity figure. But I actually think she's just an incredible performer and so much of the movie just hinges on what she's doing with her face just in silent reaction shots. And it's so compelling to watch. Awesome. Uh, Well, Roman Holiday is available for rent right now. Uh, If you are into great romantic comedies, thanks for that recommendation. What else have you watching, Caroline? So another one that I loved and that I have a little bit of a, I didn't realize this until this morning, but when I was on the podcast last for West Side Story, sort of the day before I came on the podcast, I went to a press screening of The Matrix Resurrections. Then last night I was looking for something to watch and I put on The Matrix Resurrections. So apparently my new tradition is that <laughs> before I come on the filmcast podcast, I just have to watch The Matrix Resurrections. That's a pretty good tradition. Yeah. Nice. I would be happy to keep it up because my hot take is that The Matrix Resurrections is maybe a perfect film. Maybe. <laughs> this wow. is my, was my number one last year. I was year. so yeah. pleased to hear that choice. Excellent choice. I'm 
I, I really loved this movie on a first watch and on a second watch, I I think it might be my favorite of the <laughs> Matrix films. <laughs> what? Even beating Matrix 1, you say? I can't say it is objectively better than Matrix 1. Like, objectively, mm. the first Matrix is the best, but I think Resurrections might be my favorite. It's mm. like So tell mm-hmm. us tell us why uh, this movie is your favorite. What makes it your favorite? Well, this kind of ties into the Roman holiday thing where I think that Resurrections is first and foremost a romance, mm-hmm. which is A, just such a fun and unexpected choice for a sci-fi film that I think really fits with like Lana Wachowski's sort of like Sense8 ethos, which I love. And I think it's a great use of Keanu Reeves. It's like instead of Keanu Reeves, John Wick action star, what if we go with like Keanu Reeves, something's got to give rom-com star. And that's the character he's playing now. <laughs> wow. yeah. The lake house. Yes. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that it's just such a good use of Keanu Reeves as like sweet, soft boy energy where he's mm-hmm. just like, my role in life shouldn't be to be a superhero. It should be to be the supportive partner or like you know the have this amazing supportive crush on this incredible woman and i just exist to support her and i think that's such like a fun (laughs) dynamic for this movie to have it's so like such a playful movie Mm -hmm. and i think it's also very like smart and thoughtful and yes there's flaws but like i don't care (laughs) i don't care that the action isn't that good because it gave me a beautiful romance with Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss. And that's really all I want. Yeah. I really liked your Twitter thread, by the way. So everybody Thank should go check so that much. out because you were calling out things scene by scene. And you reminded me that I was on board with this movie from the moment uh, Bugs and Morpheus hugged, like at the very beginning, where it was just like the intro to that movie is just so wild, right? Because you're you're recreating the Trinity scene from the first matrix. And you're like seeing it from another angle. Then you see a new agent and like, it's all this stuff happens and then they hug. And then at that point, I'm like, wow, this movie is just, it is doing something completely different. It is very mm-hmm. much the matrix through the eyes of sense eight uh, series, which is great. And everybody should watch it. Um, there, there are things in sense eight. I don't think I've seen in any other show, including like, uh, you know, massive sci-fi orgies it's great (laughs) they really brought that back from reloaded so check out sense8 definitely and uh glad you like this a lot caroline yeah and it doesn't hurt that like half the cat more than half Mm -hmm. the cast of sense8 pops up in matrix resurrections every time they did it felt like a little gift to me so that also (laughs) maybe helped with my enjoyment of resurrections (laughs) excellent well i'm glad you liked it you know obviously it wasn't my thing but uh, (laughs) i know it was definitely dangerous thing and many many other film critics uh things so uh, Matrix Resurrection still available on HBO Max, right? For the next uh, yes, week or it leaves so. it leaves mm-hmm. Friday as we're recording the twenty first, I believe. Yeah, so uh, if you want to uh, get in your Matrix Resurrections rewatches, make sure to do that soon uh, or sooner rather than later. Um, but yeah, that's the Matrix Resurrections. It's what else Caroline has been watching this week. All right, uh, I'll mention a few things I've been watching. Um, I want to start by talking about Cheer season two. Uh, this is the new season of the Cheer docuseries that's on Netflix. It's uh, The first season was directed by Greg Whiteley. Um, he has a co-director on for this season. Um, have any of you watched Cheer at all by, by any chance? No. About it? I, I know you guys loved it, but uh, sometimes there are these things that everybody starts loving on Twitter. And I'm like, I, I'll, I'll just have to wait on that just a bit. So yeah, mm-hmm. now season two is here. I'll catch up eventually. 
Um, Caroline, have you seen Cheer Season? No, I haven't. I've, I've like heard people describe elements of it, but I haven't watched it. Uh, this is like people will say I am overstating this, you know, but <laughs> this is one of the most sort of extraordinary docuseries I have ever watched. Um, Jeff Kanata and I talked at length about Cheer Season One and how like excellent and beautiful it was. And somehow Cheer Season 2 like reaches even higher emotional heights, in my opinion. Um, so if you, don't, if you don't know anything about Cheer, uh, the, the series... And, and by the way, it's actually not that often. I was, I was talking with my wife about this. It's actually not very often that there are like long-running docuseries, right? That mm-hmm. like, fought, like there's a lot of reality television. You know, but there's not that many docu series that are like documentaries that follow people's lives throughout like the course of many things, uh, many events, and over the course of many years. Um, so that alone kind of makes Cheer pretty special. But uh, Cheer, for those who don't know, is about uh, the, season one was about uh, the cheerleading team in the small town of Corsicana, Texas, at Navarro Community College. And season one follows that team for basically an entire season as they prepare to compete at nationals or finals or whatever it's called. And the the overall sort of objective of season one, from my perspective, was to give you an appreciation of the work and athleticism that goes into the sport that many people dismiss as kind of superfluous or not serious or whatever. Once you watch tier season one, you will not think that it is not one of the highest feats of athleticism that is possible. Um, and so that was cheer season one and it was already extraordinary. And so I'm thinking like, okay, that was a great season. Uh, it's, it's beautiful. Like the way that the cheerleading practices and performances are filmed, like it just gives you so much appreciation for this as an art form. And then you really care about these people's lives because many of these people got into cheerleading um, because their lives like weren't going well, like they, they, you know, they come from broken homes or they come from like really challenging home lives and cheerleading was a way to like center them and give them a kind of grounding and uh, routine that helped them to co- organize their lives. Um, so you kind of get a, a real appreciation of like what, uh, this sport does for them. And also, uh, the head coach, Monica Aldama and, and the kind of maternal figure that she is in many of these people's lives. So that's Cheer Season 1. Cheer Season 1 was basically a phenomenon. It was Mm -hmm. one of those shows that went, you know, international uh, and, you know, tens of millions of people watched it. And everyone who was prominently featured in Cheer Season 1 basically got famous. You know, they became influencers pretty much. Um, some of them made millions of dollars off of ad deals as a result of like being featured in cheer season one. Um, they were interviewed on like Ellen and met like many of their heroes met like Joe Biden and like all these, you know, like it cheer season one had like an explosive impact on like many of these people's lives. So cheer season two basically deals with the fallout of that. Like, what is it like (laughs) to be not anyone that anyone knows about, right? To never have any expectation that you're going to be famous. And then the next day, everyone knows who you are. Like everyone in your city knows who you are. Hundreds of thousands of people like scrutinize your every move in social media. Like, what is that like? And also, by the way, you need to keep living your life and competing in this competition. Uh, And it is totally fascinating. 
uh, and I think just like really interesting the way the show explores fame and uh, and also just like you know it's it's ultimately a documentary about a competition and the way that it makes the competition it explains everyone's backstory it makes you really root for all, all the teams that are in the show and like want them to succeed um, so I watched the entirety of Cheer Season 2, which is nine 50-minute episodes in one day, <laughs> which I, uh, I've never that's done. That's a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's how good it is. That, that's how extraordinary it is. Now, I know, like, I'm really into documentaries, you know, and so, like, this might not be for everyone, but in terms of a docuseries that goes deep into both a specific niche, like in this case, cheerleading, and the people behind that niche and has lots of emotional, powerful interviews and uh, and also just beautiful cinematography of the sport itself. I, I don't think you can do better than Cheer Season 2. So I, I recommend it in the strongest terms possible. If you haven't seen Cheer Season 1, go back, watch Cheer Season 1, then watch Season 2. You cannot... This is not a show where you can start with season two. You know, you got to start mm-hmm. with season one. Does it but... reckon with the guy that everybody loved who turned out to be a child predator? It does. Okay. It does. So, so I do I remember that. For, the, yeah. for those who don't know, there was a character that was much beloved in season one who became super famous. Everyone loved this guy. And uh, then he was prosecuted for sex crimes in the Great. year after uh, after the show came out. And I will just say that the way the show handles it is incredibly sensitive and powerful and it's one of the most extraordinary hours of television I've ever seen. So, yes, it does handle mm-hmm. it and I again, I I just I uh I can't recommend it enough. You know, it's just it's I was so moved by it and um I just would say go watch it if you haven't yet. So, that's cheer. <laughs> cheer season 2 is available right now on Netflix. Season one uh, is also available on Netflix. And uh, it's one of my favorite things ever. So uh, that's one of the things I've been watching this week. It's time to thank our sponsor this week, Headspace. Do you ever feel like your mind doesn't have an off switch or that tension is constantly traveling through your body? Or do you feel tired no matter how much you sleep? That's just a few of the many ways stress, anxiety, and sleeplessness can harm your mind and body. I know I feel many of those emotions, sometimes even during the podcast. Anyway, this year... Why not make small changes to your daily routine that have a big influence on your mental health and well-being? Start your year with Headspace. We all say we're doing fine when we don't really mean it. Fine isn't really an emotion, is it? How many times have you told yourself you're fine when all you've really been feeling are negative emotions like anger or sadness or nerves? Headspace has been scientifically shown to help you manage your feelings and your mental health. In fact, a recent study showed in just two weeks, Headspace can reduce one's stress by 14%. Whether you want to relieve stress and anxiety, sleep better, or improve your focus, Headspace is your everyday dose of mindfulness for real life. Now, I want to tell you about my personal experience with Headspace, and that is I have been a huge fan of their sleep features. In fact, uh, often I use some of their sleep casts to fall asleep. You know, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, I can't get back to sleep. I'll turn on my Headspace app, um, use their sleep cast to fall asleep. It has been a huge help to me. Uh, but that's just one of many features that Headspace offers. Be sure to check it out yourself. However you're feeling, try Headspace at headspace.com slash filmcast and get one month free of their entire mindfulness library. 
This is the best Headspace offer available. So go to headspace.com slash filmcast today. That's headspace.com slash filmcast. Thanks to Headspace for sponsoring this podcast. All right. I want to talk about a couple other things I've been watching this week. Uh, I had a chance to talk about or, or to watch the entirety of Yellow Jackets season one this yeah. week as well. Yeah. And season one finale aired this week. We're not going to spoil the season one finale. Um, but I, I will say that at the end of the day, uh, so for those who don't know, Yellow Jackets is about, um, this soccer team, uh, this team of, uh, teenage girl soccer players that basically was on a flight to nationals and the flight crash landed, uh, and some of them survived. And then you follow the, the show follows both the story of what happens uh, as a result of the plane crash and also like what happens to these people's lives like decades later. And for me, Yellow Jackets is half of an amazing show. The half that features the plane crash with the kids and what what's going on, it is exceptionally well done. It is amazing performances. I love the dynamics. It, it really captures the brutality of not only wilderness survival, but just... Uh, being in high school, which is its own kind of survival, right? Like it's hard to uh, compete with cliques and people being popular and and being an outcast and so on. And I think Yellow Jackets totally nails all that really, really well. Uh, the adult stuff I find to be kind of second-rate Coen Brothers, and I find it to be very implausible and not very interesting and kind of boring and bad. How dare you? And uh, wow. I, I, so I got to the end of the show, and I'm not, I didn't hate it, but I don't know if I'm going to watch season two. That said, like that, that's kind of my impression is like I got to the end, and I'm like, mm, yeah, like could that, I, that's could I do season two? That's insane to me that you'd watch the the majesty of the show and just like, I, I get it because I also know some people don't like the uh, the teen section because mm. uh, they, you know, I've heard says some people just don't want to deal with like stuff that could be possibly around witchcraft or some weird like mystery thing you know yeah. like they're not there's there's heavy hints that something supernatural may be mm-hmm. taking place in the show and it's very yeah, yeah. Th- this show i think of all the like lost clones is perhaps the best at like combining the things that made lost so good but i think um i, I get what you're saying dave but the you know the adult cast which includes um you know people we love uh yes i, I think that's that's the best reason to watch it so you've got melanie linsky you know, you've got Christina Ricci, you've got Juliette Lewis, and these are all people I grew up watching, you know, in the 90s. Yeah, uh, I remember true. their 90s uh, personas. So I get that kick out of watching them in the adult storylines. I agree. It is, um, I wouldn't say second rate Cone Brothers, but, you know, uh, it's, I just it's think not it's, as compelling. As yeah, the, some of the stuff you know, is, just, stuff. you know, I'm not going to explain, I'm not going to give away any plot details, but some of it just feels extremely silly uh-huh. and implausible to me, like all the, the adult stuff. Um, every time I was with the adult stuff, I was like, when, well, you know, where's Poochie? Like, why can't we see more Poochie? Yeah, like, yeah. You know, I, I, like, why can't we go back to the older plot line with the... I, I also see firmly what's book. happening here because it's a show that uh, kind of manages couple, a couple different tones at the same mm-hmm. time. And... Uh, I, I know how much you want like total consistency. Like you just want <laughs> the one thing. It's you know? I mean, that, it's fair. It's fair. Um, but you know, I did get a bunch of 
uh, flack for tweeting <laughs> what I just said. I also got a lot of tweets of support. I think some people feel the same way. So I mean, that, that's you know, that's fine. That's fine. That's totally fine. Um, I but will you, say, it sounds like you greatly enjoyed the show. I, lo- I love the show. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. Um, not, not. I'd say it has issues on both the flashback because uh, the. The girls being trapped, basically being uh, stuck in the middle of the woods is all happening in the 90s. The modern day stuff is basically today of the older cast. And I think both sides like have potential issues like there there are mysteries they haven't fully, you know, solved yet. Uh, They're like clearly like going to dangle us along for several seasons. But what works is the chemistry of the cast, like the way especially like the way the core adult women like when they get together pretty much by the end, like whenever they're working together, I think it's like really fascinating. So I, I am less about plot structure and whatnot. Um, if it's working on a character level and if it's like keeping me hooked uh, and interested as a viewer, like I, I will forgive a lot of plot issues for that. And then in the finale, we get, um, I think one of the best TV, like uh, team strut sequences I've ever seen <laughs> set to come out and play by the offspring. And I was just like, I wanted to cheer when that yeah. happened like there there is some of the best 90s music drops i've ever heard it is like on the, TV the soundtrack the, the needle drops are really incredible in the show so mm-hmm. no no doubt about that i mean episode nine i would argue is a tour de force mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not even going to say what happens in it but i'm just going to say like it is a film unto itself what happens in episode nine and really really well done like a very terrifying episode and so there are definitely some real highlights, but yeah. Devendra, I mean, you you have to share my fear, which is that Showtime is going to drag this thing out four years longer than it should go. I think right? um, I think the from the interviews I've read so far, it sounds like the showrunners have like a four or five season plan, and uh, right now it is like the most popular show Showtime has ever had. Yes. Right? I subscribe since, to Showtime billions, for this. I think it's, yeah, yeah, five million viewers. It's mm-hmm. it's really astonishing. It's a huge hit. I don't know but, like how much they'll drag it out. Like uh, right now, Showtime has revived Dexter. <laughs> a show that existed for far, far too long and apparently is back. So who knows what will happen with Yellowjack because I hope it doesn't kind of get there. But I'm less about, you know, how bad things could be in the future. This is a life perspective thing, right? Like this is the difference between me and you, Dave, right? Like I will <laughs> I will watch Lost from the beginning and like really get into the mystery. And like, you know, if it starts to get bad, I just I bounce. I, I mm-hmm. leave and maybe mm-hmm. I'll check back in to see if like my characters, the people I like, it get better. But it, it is it is not like a wasted time for me if um if something doesn't end well um unless it like retroactively makes everything worse right so there there are certain situations um think of like how i met your mother and stuff like how that ended and game of thrones of course so you know i i'm ready for this journey i love these characters i'm really intrigued to see like where they take the big mysteries cuz this is a series that also it goes hard you know, it is oh, not. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the thing. That, that's one of the things I admire about the show is it is a deeply upsetting show. And what There's I like cannibalism, the, the, the content being in the show, it, you, know, yeah. you know, like limb amputation, mutilation, you know, child death. Like it has everything that might possibly upset you in mm-hmm. it. And uh, you got to admire the show that's willing to go there. You know, like not very many shows are willing to do all that these days. And uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot to admire here. I just didn't love it as much as everyone else. And I'm sad because, you know, I, I wanted to. I, I immersed yeah, yeah, myself yeah. deeply in the world of Yellow Jackets. I'm glad I'm glad you checked film. it out because I do remember like when Lost started, I tried to like get a lot of people into it. And it became a phenomenon. But even then, like it was hard to convince people to watch, you know, the people being stuck on an island show because it sounded like uh, Gilligan's Island or something with a bit <laughs> yeah. of sci-fi. So 
I, I think the exciting part of a show like Yellow Jacks is, is being there kind of as it's building up, you know, like seeing the fan theories, seeing like people get amped for this, being there along the discovery process, I think is really exciting. So definitely, definitely check it out, folks. I sort of missed the boat on Yellow Jackets and it was a some point I was like, okay, I'll just catch up on this later. Yeah, yeah. But it has been so fun to just watch my Twitter timeline and try to figure out what this show is <laughs> just based on like the memes and the reactions. And at first it, I was like, oh, okay, this is just like a bunch of beloved character actresses together. And then like yeah, someone yeah. will tweet about cannibalism. And I'm like, what? And then you guys are like, this is a show that like, starts, and- <laughs> it starts with cannibalism. Like this is, yeah. this yeah. is first episode one. Yeah. yeah. Not Incredible. even episode one, episode one, scene one. Basically. Scene one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I uh, uh, there's definitely some highlights. And yeah, it sounds like you and I kind of enjoyed kind of different things about it. But you're, you you are right. Devendra is right that like it does have these amazing actresses that, you know, we all grew up with. Some of us grew up with. And it's like yeah. it is it is a delight to see them together. <laughs> basically, you know? like, three of my 90s crushes are here <laughs> in this show crushing it. And I yes. am I am fully on board. So I may be a little biased too. So yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um mm-hmm. but that's Yellow Jacket season one. Again, no regrets for me from watching it, but I don't think I'm gonna continue to season two. Um so uh it's streaming right now on Showtime. All episodes are available now. You can stream them all, you can binge it if you want. Uh that's Yellow Jackets. Finally, um Search Party Season Five. Yes. I finished Search Party Season Five this week, this weekend, uh this week. You know, what a journey. I, I mean, I, uh, again, I think season five is actually one of the weaker seasons out of the show. Like, but I kind of agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, oh, I, I, I'm just like, I am, I, I'll say what I said when we've talked about this a week or two ago, which is that uh, I remain impressed by the fact that this is a show that's willing to try radically different things every season. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And in terms yeah. of like sheer enjoyment and laughs, I would say season five was the one that like I probably got the least out of. Um, it, some of the episodes were like kind of rough, in my opinion, and weren't that fun. But I like where the show ended up going. It, it is very surprising, and I kind of enjoyed the overall arc and the even the message. Um, but yeah, it, I, I do think this is kind of one of the weaker seasons of Search Party season, uh, mm-hmm. of the, the series. Um, Caroline, it sounds like you finished it as well. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I think it's a season that starts strong and ends strong and gets a little yes. lost in the middle. Sure. I think yeah, it's yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like yeah. lean toward, it leans towards this, a broadness of what it's making fun of that. I think like where the show thrives is in its like specificity. Like sometimes mm-hmm. it will just make fun of these tiny self-centered interactions, <laughs> you know, millennial interactions or just like, you know, contemporary societal interactions that are so funny but I think that season five in the middle, it does this whole like subplot with all these sort of like Instagram influencers and sort of this tech billionaire that felt like broad in a way. I think that the show is is not the show at its best. Yeah. Uh, Devendra, how far are you in? Into I, fin- I finished it. Oh, nice. I, nice. I, I agree that it starts and ends very strong. And yeah, yes. there's a bit of a lag in the middle, but I was fully on board with all of it. Right. That tech billionaire is played by Jeff Goldblum. You know, John Waters shows up as the head of like this most one of the most insane like this this season goes like full Brazil or full like Terry Gilliam, like insane Mm. sci fi concepts at at certain times. So like, yeah, they just introduce things and just expect you to like accept it. Right. Like uh, you can you can buy a designer kid uh, basically through like a mail order service or something like stuff like that. And um, 
I was fully on board with like all the wild swings because it felt like th- th- we knew this was the final season and this is a show that has always taken very wild swings. And now they're just like, whatever, man, we don't, we don't, we're not responsible for the, you know, to explain all this, just like we, we have what, 10 episodes. So just like deal with whatever we're throwing at you. And I was fully on board for the ride. And I think, um, we need to have a spoiler discussion of this at some point, because I do think like the idea of like where basically what millennials do, uh, in this show and what they're responsible for, I think is, deeply hilarious and definitely ties into like what season one was doing as well. And man, like how, how far things have come from the simple days of, uh, you know, Dory Seif just looking for a lost girl to, to where things go. I, I love it so much just for all that. And it, it is still funny. Like the interactions between the characters, even as things get crazier and crazier, I think are deeply grounded in like the same sort of like conflicts and like pettiness and millennial like speak as the first season. So season one, I started rewatching that like after I moved out of New York and it really made me miss, um, miss and not miss certain aspects of like being in New York and around a lot of people like this. Uh, But it is deeply funny to me, like how much it just like really, really leans in on the fact that certain millennials can be goddamn exhausting. So I found it all hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and I agree that I think it actually ends very strong. So um, mm-hmm. I, I have no regrets about this journey. Uh, I think it's been a wild ride, and I do think that it's worth checking out the entire show. Search Party <laughs> seasons one through five streaming right now on HBO Max. And uh, yeah, uh, maybe we'll do an After Dark uh, next week about it. We kind of have to because uh, I just I think uh, of like certain scenes from this season of just like one one thing that basically turns into like uh somebody entering it chapter 2 which i think is yeah, oh yes so, so, that was like, so good incredible. so good incredible. so good yeah 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 amazing um okay Search Party season season five. That's what I've been watching this week. Uh, Devendra, hit us up with a few things you've been watching. Yeah, a couple of things. I got a lot of things, actually, so I'll move pretty quickly. But I got to see Encanto, the latest Disney animation film about um, how to explain this movie. It's about a Colombian girl who lives in a magic house and everybody in her family has magical powers because of the house. And the house is also like sentient. It is um, it is wild. It, it is really wild, um, really fun. It is also deeply disturbing. And despite being like a very, very like, oh, this is going to be a fun family film. I think it is entirely about how deeply screwed up this family is and the lingering impacts of family trauma can have on people. Um, So, yeah, this show goes places like or this movie goes places. It begins with like basically somebody's family getting wiped out because of, uh, I think, drug related violence or something like they don't really say it. But basically, somebody's entire family or her husband and the rest of her family. I think it is more of like a civil unrest kind of deal. But yeah, there, it's, there is. Um, yeah, it, it's it's really a dark way to to kind of introduce mm-hmm. that idea, and and without any specificity either. Yeah, it's very. It's set, it's set in Colombia, so it's kind of like uh, alluding to a lot of the troubles uh, Colombia has had. Um, I think it also like it, it is a movie deeply about like the mean grandma trope. And I find like it does some really interesting work around that without, I'm not going to spoil too much, but is it, by the way, yeah. is it in Colombia? I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I know yeah, yeah. like it is, it is. Okay. I, I didn't, I didn't know if it was explicitly, if they explicitly said Colombia in there, but anyway, okay. I don't know if like the movie declares it, but beca- it's I believe like, they sing it. I feel like yeah, there might yeah, yeah. be a, 
I'm sort of remembering from the trailer. Yeah. So I'm going like Colombia. And like, I, I know that region. I know that many of them are Colombia. You know, so I'm not doubting mm-hmm. that that's what it is. But I I just don't recall. I wonder if it was kind of like more like Ryan the Last Dragon situation where it's no, not like it's not like an amalgamation. Yeah. Like also yeah. like the yeah. the like mountainous uh, village area they're in is like very very much Colombia. But also want to say like th- this is a movie that also features songs written original songs by Lin Manuel Miranda, and I do feel like he's reached a point in culture where, where people are just like done with him or at least like Twitter people. Right. Especially when like Gen, um, Gen Z, Gen Z specifically, Gen Z is done with yeah. him, but also like, I, I think a lot of like discourse people on Twitter are just like sick of him, especially the way like the Democrats deployed him uh, for like <laughs> to support voting rights. Um, a lot of it is very cringe. I agree. But the songs in this movie are freaking fantastic. And I've seen this movie five or six times at this point, because my daughter is um, really digs it. Like she, she has a lot of fun with it. I think the songs are fantastic, but I think what's also really interesting is that it is the villain of this movie is not who you would expect. Basically. Like I think the main antagonist or the person that's kind of like making everything kind of bad for the family. And I think confronting it is really interesting and it does kind of sugarcoat things by the end because it's a Disney movie, but uh, it is interesting the way it explores it. And I think it's, uh, you know, for anybody who who's ever encountered a mean uh, grandma, especially, uh, you know, in cultures outside of America, it does a really interesting job of showing like why they can be the way they are and also, you know, how they impact the rest of the family. Like a lot of this stuff trickles down. So I found that all really fascinating. Uh, I watched the movie. I enjoyed it as well, Caroline. It sounds like you were a fan too, yeah? I did, yeah. I, I would say for me, it is not quite as high as Moana and My mm-hmm. Beloved Tangled, which is yes. like one of my favorite animated movies of all time. But I would yeah, put it above yeah. the Frozen films, which I'm not a huge fan of <laughs> in this sort. And I would put it above Riot too. I wasn't a huge fan of Riot and The mm-hmm. Last Dragon. I, mm-hmm. I do want to add to everything you were saying, Devinder, that Enkendo is also like beautiful to look at. So good. Like, the animation yeah. is stunning. They do a lot of the same use of light, like magic light, as mm-hmm. Tangled does. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. one of the, the yeah. directors or the co-directors also worked on Tangled. And it's just like this beautiful imagery and the way they do the sort of magic house or sort of it's like personified. It's more like like the floorboard will sort of like kick up the main character's shoes to like yeah. so she can slip yeah. into them as she's walking around. Like it's so playful and and like original and all the animation I thought was gorgeous. Basically, the way they anthropomorphize the house is like really effective and creative. It's really mm-hmm. good. So, it's what yeah. I mean. It's it, it goes back to like what Mickey Mouse days with Disney, but I think it looks and works really well here too. Yeah. yeah. So that's Encanto. It's streaming right now on Disney Plus. Mm-hmm. Um, all three of us enjoyed it. Devinder, what else you been watching? I also finished Station Eleven. Guys, this is a really good season of TV, right? Like, I'm just like going from watching like we we finished at Succession, and then Station Eleven took its spot, and it has ended up becoming like one of my favorite shows I think ever. Um, it is up there with the leftovers for me. Um, this is a show, you know, yeah, it, it is set in a post pandemic world. The first episode starts with like a, a flu that kills off like what 95% of the world's population or like some very large amount. So it is a very triggering show to watch right now, but man, do they do some really interesting things here? So I was like full on bawling by the final few episodes of the show. And I think the finale is just like, one of the most beautiful things I've seen on TV in a very long time. Um, it doesn't wrap everything up completely. Like I think it introduces certain plot lines, 
that never really get fleshed out. And because this is technically a miniseries and I think they covered everything that was in the novel, like we probably won't like see more of this unless, you know, the, the showrunner like has an idea or something. I really love this, but maybe you have to have like a certain sensibility to like find hope in the hopelessness uh, or hope in society somehow trying to rebuild itself after a society wiping event. It, I find a certain comfort from it. And I think it's a story that's really well told and the way it like focuses on different characters and moves back and forth in time, I thought was really, really compelling. So just, just tremendous TV. Like there, there's just some incredible stuff in station 11. I am fully prepared to like go read the book. Cause I, I know the show is very different, uh, but I really kind of want to see, you know, the ways this author was thinking of this world. So yeah, loved it. I'd highly recommend it to everybody, especially if you liked the leftovers. That's Station Eleven is streaming right now on HBO Max. Mm-hmm. What else you been watching, Devendra? Insecure also ended, also on HBO. You know, HBO has a lot of good TV. Like they're just like killing it. Uh, but this is the Issa Rae show about a group of like black friends in LA. Uh, it ran for, I believe, five seasons at this point. Yeah, five, this is the fifth season. Um, I thought it was a really beautiful ending for the show because it kind of like. I'm not going to spoil anything here, but it kind of gives you a glimpse into the future of like where characters that we've loved for several seasons, where they go, how their lives end up. And maybe it's a little neat for some people, but I really dig the show. I think it's like truly hilarious. Um, and like everybody in the show is just, is doing some amazing work here. So I'd highly recommend insecure. Um, and at least I can say like, they didn't like screw up the ending again, like how I met your mother. So I'm very glad like everything ended very well here. I like this um, scale of of criticism. Is it better or worse than How I Met Your Mother? <laughs> it's a How I, I Met Your Mother scale. Yeah. Is it How I Met Your Mother? I just rent uh, Sedan Adlaka just wrote something for Polygon, I believe, um, but about like uh, the ending of How I Met Your Mother. So that show is on my mind right now. But I was also reminded like, hey, man, that show was good in the beginning mm-hmm. like so good and then wow did they screw it up so that that is kind of like my personal scale you know if you, if i if i continue to care about you for your entire run and if you give me a good finale and a good final season i will i will sing your praises for sure all right davindra what else have you been watching also shouting out the righteous gemstones a show which i have in the past described as a succession in the south because it very much is, it is the template of succession. You know, it is about a uh, a rich family um, running like a mega church. Uh, Dan, uh, what's his face? Uh, John Goodman is the patriarch. He's the head of it, and his children include uh, Danny McMar- Danny McBride, Adam Devine, or is it Devine? Um, and it's like it, it is this like big uh, big institution they've built. They are very rich. The children are like vying for control and to see like who will eventually take over. Uh, so many of the dynamics of succession are here, but uh, it is also a show that is, um, you know, it's a show featuring Danny McBride. Uh, it's a show uh, co-created by Jody Hill, who did a lot of like, you know, all the Danny McBride shows like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals and stuff. So it is deeply weird. And deeply wild and like off kilter. So it it, it is just kind of hilarious where things go on this. Um, Last season, uh, trying to think of like who I'm trying to think of here. Um, Last season featured like Walton Goggins, 
you know, in this uh, going against Danny McBride in like full on comedy form, uh, Eric Andre is in this season. I think it is like it is a weird show. It is a wild show. Uh, it may not be for everybody, but I think the tone of it is absolutely hilarious and something I really click with. So I'd highly recommend The Righteous Gemstones. Season two just started and uh, it's a uh, it's a lot of fun, especially if you want to see like a show that's not set in New York or LA or like the typical places, right? It's set in the South and it kind of like spends a lot of time here. And, and like a lot of shows, I don't think it like, it is not making fun of people down here, which is something I've, you know, I, I live outside of Atlanta now. So it's like, I, I recognize when people start to like just dismiss the South and Southern culture and whatnot. Uh, this show is reckoning with um, the world of megachurches and like how gross it can be at times, but also humanizing a lot of these folks too. So I think it's worth watching. All right, that's The Righteous Gemstones just entering Season 2, and that's also on HBO Max. Devendra, last thing you've been watching this week. Last thing. I've been watching so so many things. I did also want to shout out on HBO, uh, Sort Of. The show is called Sort Of. It's by uh, Terrible Bilal. Name. Terrible. Terrible name. It's not a great name because it's really hard to like introduce it. Uh, but it stars and is created by Bilal Beg, who is a gender-fluid 20-something. He's kind of like trying to figure out his his like the way they want to live basically right that like it's like a very 20 something show because it's about them trying to find their direction in life um trying to like figure out like how they'll talk to their families about um about their gender identity but also like you know just kind of what they want to do i think it's really funny it's really sweet and it can also like veer into being like very very like dramatic at times too but I think it's really, really worth watching. It's also set in Toronto. So you get like a uh, you get like a city, uh, you know, like a street level view of like what that city could be like. And it also covers like a lot of like, you know, really cool uh, genderqueer subcultures in, in Toronto as well. So I think it's worth watching. It's on HBO Max. All right. That's what Devendra has been watching this week. And that's what we've all been watching this week. Let's get to uh, some weekly plugs. <laughs> All right, Weekly Plugs, the part of the show where we talk about other stuff that we've been creating. Caroline, what's a specific weekly plug you have? Yeah, well, I will just shout out my podcast, which is called Roll Calling. That's R-O-L-E. I do it with my friend Ned Baker, who is a filmmaker and actor. And the premise is that we take an actor we love and we sort of curate a little five film miniseries that we think sort of like sums up the highlights of their career or just interesting aspects of their career. And we've done people like... Christian Bale and Emily Blunt and Jamie Lee Curtis and James Dean and Jeffrey Wright. But the specific episode I will point your listeners to, since I'm assuming you have a bunch of cool, interesting film loving listeners is uh, we did an episode on Dev Patel in the green Knight, which I think was really fun and, and sort of doing our whole series on Dev Patel and where he started with Slumdog and then where he has gone since then was just like a really cool arc to trace and i think green knight was a really cool and interesting one to sort of end that series on and dig into so yeah the podcast is called roll calling that's roll r-o-l-e and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts all right very cool i just watched the green knight again recently on 4k blu-ray and Mm. i think it might have melted my eyeball yeah (laughs) this is a beautiful (laughs) on your oled and everything oh yeah yeah. it's it's an incredible viewing experience on a nice tv in 4k um, so we strongly recommend also, by the way, you know, where, um, physical media really shines is with, uh, 
movies that have a lot of darkness in them. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of modern streaming services, streaming devices, like can't really handle darkness compression super well and ends up being really smudgy um, and not looking that good. And this is a moment where like having a Blu-ray or 4K Blu-ray really makes a big difference in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, Green Knight, check out Caroline Sita's uh, podcast, Roll Calling, about it. Um, I just want to give a plug for my personal Patreon page at patreon.com slash Dave Chen, um, where I basically do full reviews of stuff like immediately after it's out. Um, I had reactions of like Matrix Resurrections and um, Yellow Jackets and uh, Station Eleven and stuff like right after they came out. Um, would recommend you check out the podcast here over at patreon.com slash Dave Chen, if you want my unprocessed, raw, uh, and not particularly articulate uh, reactions to some of the stuff that's happening. Again, that's my personal Patreon page. Devendra, your weekly plug. I just wanted to shout out the Gadget podcast in general. Check it out. Uh, I was actually off for the last week, so we didn't have a new episode. A bunch of people took time off after CES. But we are planning to do some really cool stuff. Uh, we've got episodes planned talking about the James Webb Telescope. We're going to be diving into like some of the newest laptops and stuff coming out. And it's going to be a really exciting year for tech. So you know, follow us along. You can find the Engage podcast everywhere you find podcasts. All right. Uh, and also a weekly plug for some of the podcast stuff. Um, if you want to support the show, you can always go to patreon.com slash film podcast and sign up for ad free episodes and or exclusive after darks. Uh, of course, if you uh, want to support us, but don't want to pay money, uh, it's very easy to do that. All you got to do is go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review for us or a star rating. It really does make a difference. Also, Spotify has just launched podcast ratings um, so if you're on Spotify listening there, uh, just spend a few seconds, leave a star rating for the Filmcast podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Finally, uh, if you want to use hashtag slash tag on Twitter, that's how you can recommend stuff for us to watch in the weeks to come. A lot of recommendations uh, have come that way and have uh, been used as part of the show. So we really appreciate all the people who recommend things, all the people who uh, donate, all the people who rate us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and all the people who just listen and don't do any of that. Uh, we still appreciate you anyway. Okay, let's get to our review of The Tragedy of Macbeth. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. My husband. King that shall be. We should fail. We fail. Didst thou not hear noise? Methought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. That was from the trailer for The Tragedy of Macbeth, the newest film by director Joel Cohen. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. A Scottish lord becomes convinced by a trio of witches that he will become the next king of Scotland, and his ambitious wife supports him in his plans of seizing power. Now, that sounds uh, so sweet. You know, it sounds so like. 
She may have girl bossed a little bit too hard, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yes, uh, but yes, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth. It, it's based off of a play by William Shakespeare that's around five hundred years old, and uh, as a result, I think we're going to just say there's going to be no spoiler section in this uh, episode. You should just assume there's going to be spoilers for the play right up front. Now, there are things I would argue actually are kind of spoilers. Sure. In the sense yeah, yeah, that yeah. 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 Th- there are decisions that Joel Cohen makes that make this different than both the the original play and also other renditions of it. So you should assume we are going to spoil all those things from the beginning of this review. But I want us to be able to speak freely about the tragedy of Macbeth because it's weird to talk about some things and not others. And, and it sounds ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous when we're trying to avoid spoilers <laughs> for something like Macbeth. So all that said, Caroline Sita, I'm very curious. What did you think of Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth? Yeah, I really dug this movie. The word I would use to describe it is groovy. <laughs> Wow. I don't know why that's what I landed on. You're really Austin Powering this, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm channeling Austin Powers. It's black and white, gorgeous mm. cinematography, gorgeous set design. Sort of this really interesting choice to blend something that feels cinematic with something that feels incredibly theatrical in a way that I'm not sure I've quite seen done before. It's only an hour and 46 minutes long, which cannot, I cannot say enough how joyous that is to me. Well, <laughs> I, I, and just some context for that, which is just that like <laughs> for 2021, so many movies have been two and a half hours long. So long. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I, I don't, normally I don't, I don't care. Long movies. But I don't yeah. hate, but, but yeah, it's just, there's been so, so many, many of them. Isn't so there? many. There's just been so many. And it's just like, it's just a long period of time to ask for someone's attention. I say as somebody who watched nine hours of cheer in one day. <laughs> um, but yes, I, I would agree with you that in general, when I see a movie runtime and it's like 90 to 100 minutes, I'm like, I'm excited. You know, I'm like, yeah. Wow. And it just means that there's a sense of purpose, I think, <laughs> right? Like if you can yeah, edit yeah. well, <laughs> oftentimes that means you know exactly what you're doing. So I think as a piece of like, cinema again this movie is groovy it's cool it's like so compelling it's so beautiful is it the most like compelling shakespeare adaptation i've ever seen or shakespeare performance i've ever seen probably not like i think that there's if i have critiques about it it's more in how it does or doesn't sort of bring the text to life but the thing is like i can go see macbeth anywhere right like i can go to a free shakespeare in the park and see it or I'm sure watch a million performances on YouTube. So I don't think it needs to be the best Macbeth adaptation ever. It's sort of cool that it's just this weird half play, half movie thing that is sort of unlike anything I've seen before. So yeah, I really, I really connected with this one. Devendra, what'd you think? Yeah. Uh, I also feel very groovy baby because it's uh this is <laughs> such a, it's such a beautiful film. Like it is, it is, yeah, we've we've seen so many Macbeth adaptations and we just saw one a couple of years ago, which was also like very visually stylish. But unlike that last one, was that uh, Justin Kurzweil, I believe? Um, yes. Very good, Devendra. Yeah. And that was like, you know, Devendra, that was yeah. longer ago than we think. It was yeah. I actually rewatched part of it. It was uh, 2014. I think that movie came out. I mean, yeah. 20 years ago, basically. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I remember really wanting to be into that movie because I liked him as a director. I thought the like the visual aesthetic he was going for seemed really cool. Um, turns out that movie was pretty much all aesthetic and not really like biting into like the, the text or giving me interesting performances or anything. Um, and then you have this, which is also like a very visually compelling uh, production of Macbeth. But I think it's uh it just, it looks 
incredible. It doesn't look like, you know, any like movie, you know, released uh, in the last decade. Like, you know, we've seen a lot of like black and white stuff and maybe it's a bit like the lighthouse, which was also, I believe um, four by three and also like very stark and black and white, but the aesthetic is very different because yeah, it is very much play. Like it is like, they're not hiding the fact that this is on a stage, you know? And, um, and well, the, these let's are all just sets. Talk, let's yeah. talk briefly about the look of the movie. It, it uh-huh. is, it is unlike anything you've seen before because this set of decisions I think mm-hmm. is very rare. If it, I don't even know if it's ever happened before, which is they shot it in what appears to be four by three. Mm-hmm. It's not shot on film. I don't believe it's shot on Ari Alexa large format. I think um, so. Everything is razor sharp, right? So it's not like yeah. the lighthouse. Lighthouse looks like it was shot on film. Yeah, yeah. And then it appears to be done in such a way where you, as the viewer are acutely aware of the artifice of every mm-hmm. uh, of every shot like it's very clear that these people are on a stage basically yeah. or or on a set of some kind yeah. right if, if they're so, in a forest they're just like surrounded by a, a couple trees and that's yes. it or, or like a painting of trees mm-hmm. or whatever you know like so it's just like a, such a distinct set of decisions that i don't recall ever seeing ever like this set mm-hmm. of decisions before to portray anything let alone Macbeth for sure and that that yep. definitely carried me along too it's like you know it's still it's Macbeth I've, I've I've read it I studied it I've seen it performed many times there are still certain sections where I'm like I, I I have very little idea of what's actually happening but it was so compelling and Denzel Washington is great Francis McDormand is great and uh certainly uh who was uh, Catherine Hunter as the witch is mm-hmm. just like holy oh shit amazing like, unlike yeah. anything i've ever seen like this this version of macbeth absolutely nails the witches right like it's mm-hmm. just, yeah. just like such a distinct presentation of the witches i've never seen anything like it before so mm-hmm. absolutely like basically every time catherine hunter appears is a nightmare and now something <laughs> i can't stop thinking about yes uh but yeah so overall really really dug this one I'll share a few thoughts. I mean, I overall really loved it as well. I think this movie is such a gift because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, t- to be able to see Denzel, one of the greatest actors of our generation, play Macbeth, that's just that's just amazing. It's not lovely to see it. Frances McDormand, you know, doing her thing as well. Mm-hmm. It's 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 amazing. It's just like, wow, I, I can't believe we got to see it. You know, it's, I-, I love that this movie exists. Huge fan of it. Devinger, you've already pointed out why it's beautiful. Uh, I, let's talk a little bit about some of the decisions that this this Macbeth makes that are kind of interesting, right? In addition to the visuals that make you acutely aware of the fact that you're watching a stage play, right? It, it manages to fuse film and stage play in a way that nothing else I've ever seen does. Mm-hmm. But uh, the biggest decision I think this movie makes is in the casting of Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Um, sure. Typically, I think Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are much younger, right? Like, I imagine them in their 30s. Um, and... Like an ambitious, the time where you would expect somebody to be like very ambitious and kind of an up and comer. Yeah. Well, yeah. All, yeah. Also during a, during a time in human history, when if you were a general of an army, you might not live past your thirties. Right. 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 And uh, your life expectancy was not necessarily that high past your thirties. And so, yes. Um, but you're right too. Like the time when the ambition might, might be there. And so by casting these older actors who are in their sixties, it really does give the, all the proceedings a very different feel mm-hmm. to it. This idea that, Macbeth doesn't have any heirs, which is uh, a plot point in the play, um, now takes on a more special resonance. And and the idea that like maybe this is the way to secure their legacy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, by yeah. murdering the king and taking his place, you know, like that's all um, 
given just a very different feel now in this version of the movie. Uh, I uh, I believe only one change was made to the actual text of Shakespeare, um, which is the line about like you know you're you're not like you should have boys or something like that. You guys know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Yeah. There's this yeah. line when he says to her like. You know, you're su- basically he to paraphrase like you're such a badass. Like you should be having, uh, you should only have boys. Like if you if you have children, right? Mm-hmm. And like I think it was changed to like the past tense, if I if I recall correctly. Um, so uh, it, it's just kind of interesting, like that. That's like one of the choices they make. The other, one of the other big choices they make is um, the decision to make Ross like a fairly central character. Mm-hmm. Um, Ross is played by Alex Hassel, and he he's like almost like a lead in this film. Yeah, you guys what know a, mm-hmm. the guy with the face of like whatever he plays. You think he's a vampire? Basically, yeah. <laughs> like he just has a very very distinctive. He was vicious in Cowboy Bebop too, and he had like no presence in that show. Whereas here, he's just like I. What is this vampire up to? You know. Yeah. It's funny you point out the face. To me, it was all about the costume, which is like this incredible, like, it's like a robe, but it's like cinched in almost like a column dress. Like, you, I was like, Mm -hmm. how is he walking in this? Like, like, it is so tight. Two flowing, like, tails almost. Mm -hmm. So it looks like he's about to fly at all all times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and basically, if, if I, by the way, uh, the, the line I was talking about earlier, I just want to clarify, is like um, the line about like they, they changed one of the verses that Denzel's character says um, to into the past tense, basically. Uh, the line was bring forth men, children only for thy undaunted metal should produce nothing but males. That's the line. And they changed it to uh, should have produced. I think that's the only tweak they made to the language in the whole in the whole play. So uh, but yes, going back to Ross. Uh, what's interesting about the Ross character is that in the original version of the play, uh, Macbeth hires these two guys to go and kill. Uh, I think it's uh, is it Macduff or the other guy, right? Um, Banquo. Yeah, Banquo. Uh, and yeah. the two assassins are met by a third unnamed dude in the original play, but in the movie they make it Ross. That character is Ross, which is like, oh, what a what a like kind of clever way to kind of make this character uh, more resonant. And then of course the movie ends with Ross as well. You find out that Ross actually did not murder Fleance, but that he's actually like uh, saved Fleance's life and like, is like keeping Fleance for his own ends, you know, essentially very much like Um, one of of those game of Thrones characters, you know, who's just like always trying mm -hmm. to serve the kingdom. It's like a Varys, like very very Varys or Littlefinger-esque character that that Ross becomes. That has existed in other Shakespeare plays to like people who basically have no motives uh, that the, the greater plot has, right. They, they are just this force of nature that kind of exists out there. Yeah. 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 But I just, uh, it's just always cool. You know, whenever you see a a filmed adaptation, it's always just interesting to see what decisions they made. What did they leave in? What did they leave out? Right. And, and in this case, how did they actually like transform um, like one of the characters to make him like way more prominent in this version? Uh, so that's totally fascinating. Um, overall, I loved just kind of observing that, watching the film. I think I think all the actors did a great job. Here's the biggest weakness of this movie, in my opinion, is it goes too fast. This is one of the most movies. It's an hour and 50 minutes long. I'm like, I, this should have been 20 you minutes want, longer. You want more, opinion. yeah. Not, not even more, not even more. I, they could have made this 20 minutes longer and not changed any of the dialogue right, in this, right, in this right. movie. 
but it is just going from scene to scene to mm-hmm. scene to scene to scene. Like it's moving. Give, so give it time quickly. to breathe. It would be nice. Right, yeah. yeah. It, it's just like you theoretically, like, I don't know what the time frame of the Macbeth is like the play Macbeth is. I think it's years, right? It's years that happen between act one and, and the final act. Um, and it all happens. It feels like it could have happened in an afternoon in this, in this right, version. Right, right. Right. And you don't like the performance is there. Like, Denzel is doing a great job, but you really need to kind of feel time more in a way that I don't think this play version allows you to do. Um, and it's very different than like the Justin Kurtzel version. So I actually went back and watched the Justin Kurtzel version. And that, no, Carolyn, have you seen the Justin Kurtzel, the Michael no, Fassbender? No, it's a blind spot for me. Um, his it is a beautiful to Assassin's Creed, basically, right? Yeah, <laughs> with the same actors. Yeah, it is a beautiful film, uh, and there's like really striking visuals in it. And like, as an example of like, here here's a great example of like how it's different. Is there is a scene in this movie when like towards the beginning when like um, Macbeth is being presented with like the Thane of Caldor sash or whatever it is right and like i think in the in the tragedy of macbeth movie like they go outside and they kill the thane of calder like right there like mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like mm-hmm. yep by the way like he's dead now we're killing him you know as, as if uh, it was like blocked for a stage play basically right right like, right, right. Yeah. exactly yeah. exactly and in the kurtzel version what happens is uh macbeth has just been in battle he is literally holding like one of his soldiers who's like in an agonizing pain as he's being like repaired uh, or, you know, treated medically. And then somebody comes like into the middle of the battlefield and like presents him like, Hey, by the BT dubs, like you're Thane of Caldor now. Like, and you know, he, he's like Michael Fassbender's character is like in the middle of like other shit, you know, like he's doing mm-hmm. other stuff. And, and you get the sense that like, you know, the, the purpose of that version was to make you was to transplant the language of Macbeth into like a very gritty, realistic uh, sort of period piece. And that's not what the objective of this one is. This is to kind of put on a kind of hybrid stage filmed version of it. Um, and I do think that the pacing suffers because of that. Um, Caroline, what do you think of the pacing of this one? Am I, am well, I way off base? What do you think? No, I sort of understand what you're saying, but I almost wouldn't put it down to the pacing. I would put it down to, like, I think that there there's a way to present Shakespearean language that is a little clearer than the way that this movie does, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Like there's, I think that this movie really prioritizes sort of a naturalism to the way the, the dialogue comes out. Right. And it's a very, they're very sort of like small and internal performances. But I think because of that, there can sometimes be a slightly like monotone quality to it where it feels less like the actor is sort of guiding you through what they're saying and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, like you'll see some Shakespeare productions and they'll do a hand gesture that is really clarifying of something or something that's a little more heightened that is really guiding the audience through the language. And I think maybe because this movie isn't doing that and because it has that slightly more monotone quality it's almost easier to like zone out or feel like you're a step behind. And then I think because of that, things feel like they're moving quicker. I mean, maybe what I'm talking about is just something completely different than what you're no, talking no, no. about, I, but that I was think that's a least... great point. But here's what I'm going to put out. What I'm going to point out is one of our biggest complaints with the Justin Kurtzel Macbeth 
is that it took what you're saying to an extreme. Yeah, yeah. Like, people, are, like, I went back and watched, because remember, Devinger, when we talked about that movie, I guess seven years ago now, <laughs> um, we, we were complaining about how poorly that movie treated the, the Shakespearean language. That, that right? re- like, I remember Jeff was really hurt by that. Yeah, like, yeah, and, yeah, and I was too. I was like, I was not happy with it because you have people basically, like, whisper talking the lines, right? They're, they're speaking it ultra-naturalistically. Like, they're speaking it like they would movie dialogue. Mm-hmm. And... It sucks. Like I, I, that's by far the biggest weakness of that version of Macbeth is, um, it does not honor the language, in my opinion. And I would say this one does a much better job, but it is still relatively naturalistic. So I guess what I'm saying to you is, I agree with you, but also it could have been way worse <laughs> than what it is. Sure, sure. In this movie, Absolutely. and if you if you watch the Kurtzel version, it's like the the way the witches, you know, they they literally speak like, you know, all hail Macbeth, Thane of Caldor. You know, like mm-hmm. they, they literally talk like that. And That's the it's, thing about Shakespeare. Like, I I totally get why just the idea of Shakespeare is so off putting for people because I think if it's not done well, it just can be off putting. I think when you're just reading it, it can be really off putting. Like, it's kind of a shame that most people's introduction is in just like reading it in a high school class because it's just not meant to be read. It's meant to be seen. And I like again, I think the tragedy of Macbeth of Macbeth mostly does a really good job with that. Even if I don't know if I would put it up there with like my all time favorite, like version of people sort of bringing Shakespeare to life, at least in the dialogue. Do you have a favorite version? I'm curious that comes to mind. Um, you know, Macbeth is actually one of the Shakespeare's I'm not super familiar with in terms of like just other performers that I think are great at Shakespeare. I think that David Tennant, who most people probably know first and foremost from Dr. Who is like maybe the greatest living Shakespearean actor. I think he is like, if you want to hear what it sounds like to bring the dialogue to life in a way that sounds completely naturalistic, but also is highlighting the poetry of it. Mm -hmm. He has filmed production. They were stage productions, but filmed versions of Hamlet. This like really great much ado about nothing with Catherine Tate. And then he did this production of Richard the second that if you can track down, like I would so highly recommend, I think it's one of the best, Shakespeare performances I've ever seen. But yeah, I think you you see somebody like David Tennant do it, which is not to say that the actors in Tragedy of, of Macbeth are not also great, but I think he is such a top tier example of how to blend the naturalism with the heightenedness and sort of get them both. And and once you see that, you're like, oh, this is how it's sort of all supposed to sound. And it, and it makes so much more sense when you hear some like someone like that do it. Uh Great references. I uh, I'm curious if there's any like filmed versions you're a fan of. Like, did you like uh, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, for instance? Um, you know what? That's also a blind spot for me. I oh. do like Kenneth Branagh's Much Ado. I think that that's another one that probably leans slightly more on the heightened side, but is just like super enjoyable and fun. I think ultimately, like this is probably my theater route showing, but like I do tend to prefer Shakespeare on stage to mm-hmm. Shakespeare mm-hmm. filmed. And and again, I think that maybe is something that I liked so much about Tragedy of Macbeth is that it didn't is that it did embrace the sort of inherent staginess of it. Yeah. And didn't try to make it fully natural, particularly in the visuals. So I would say that this is like like honestly, if Joel Cohen just wants to just go ahead and do every Shakespeare play like this for the next, you know, every couple of years, just like put one out, I would happily watch as many of these as he wants to put out is i literally it, had that new thought. yeah, yeah. Is, is it a new like format like the uh the screen view format like <laughs> coming through your uh your computer right. screens or something Fa- like Fathom that. events or something like that. yeah, yeah. I, I literally had that thought of like man i it would be great if you could just go through the entire catalog and just like yeah. do it in this way that would be awesome and do them know? all under two hours it'd right. be nice, exactly. it'd be nice. Exactly. well that, that's a, that's the other thing is 
the full play of Macbeth, I think, takes roughly two and a half hours to do. So they obviously edited out a bunch of stuff. And I got to say, I think they did a pretty good job of the edit. Like, what I mean by that is they left in a bunch of the stuff that is the most easily comprehensible, you know? Because yeah. there's a bunch of stuff that's, like, hard to understand. It's hard to grok. And I think most of the stuff they left in is, like, pretty clear and obvious. Not all of it. Some of this still is kind of obscure and you need to, like, read or think about it. But, yeah, um, I, I think I think they did a good job with, with the edit. I, I do think it, it went a little bit fast. One of the distinct parts about this movie is that it actually has some of that good old Coen Brothers ultraviolence in it. <laughs> yeah, which it does. Usually yeah. when I watch like a Shakespeare adaptation, um, I don't recall seeing the violence, like it, 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 enough like attention or that much attention given to it, nor is it this graphic usually, I feel like. Is that, am I, I mean, t- typically for, especially for like, uh, Caroline, if you're talking about like a film version of a play, they do it very like mm-hmm. stylistically, right? The violence. Yeah, I'm trying you know, to remember. Somebody takes the... out a red handkerchief or something like that. Yeah, I true, remember like yeah, that Kurosawa's sure. uh, Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is certainly a very like violent and uh, wild, you know, interpretation of this. Yeah. Yes, totally, totally. I was trying totally. to remember how violent the Polanski version is, mm. which I have not seen since high school. But I feel that I think that one might really lean into the sort of bloody battleness of it all but this one is like visceral in a different way because it's not big epic battles it's a lot more like really small intimate like hand-to-hand scenes which i think almost can feel more visceral sometimes absolutely i I thought it was very effective and and the scene when uh he murdered like Macbeth murders uh duncan is just Mm -hmm. really brutal in 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 a way that i didn't like i expected it to happen off screen because i i don't think it happens explicitly in the play like it happens in the play but i don't think it happens like quote unquote on screen in the play like mm-hmm. i just recall Macbeth talking about like hey i did the deed and also by the way i brought the knives back for some reason like <laughs> that's that's what happens in the play but like i don't think it's necessarily in the instructions to show it happening right mm-hmm. and so um so the fact that they showed it and like when you know duncan wakes up and Mac- the look on denzel's face is just like chilling man it's chilling that, that's why that's why you show it right he's just for like that that sort of like little visual poetry there uh once i heard denzel was uh was playing Macbeth, i just like i really wanted to see him do some cool sword shit and this movie <laughs> certainly delivered at the very end so yeah, yeah worth a watch just just for that one scene where he's basically taking on uh, i forgot who the uh who that character is but basically taking on the is guy Malcolm that he's fighting at the end there it could be yeah 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 it could be, um, or no, Malcolm is the, uh, yeah, the he's fighting. Oh, that's no, 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 sorry, 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 sorry. You're, you're right. Yeah. I apologize. I apologize. Um, um, but I forget the character, but it's just like, it is a fight where he's like, I am fucking untouchable. I, you know, <laughs> I have been ordained yes. to be immortal. So I'm going to fight you as if you cannot hurt me. And just that like brazen way he approaches that fight. And like, he gets a scar in his face and just like, he's like slapping this guy around who has a full length sword on him while Macbeth is unarmed throws the sword back at the guy it's just so that that is like it's badass and it's also like action that is telling you so much about the character and that is my favorite type of action like that that's his headspace he's fully bought into the prophecy and he thinks he's untouchable yeah yeah what i love is just the way he sits on that throne so good which i think if you are a male shakespearean (laughs) actor maybe women too but like the most important quality you can have is just like to sit on a throne in a compelling way you gotta you gotta own the throne yeah you have to own the throne and just the like 
this is like casual arrogance of how he's sitting, like the sense of entitlement, even as his life is like in some ways collapsing. Mm-hmm. But he does have that sense of like, well, no man born of woman can kill me. So yeah, like, I'm just yeah. going to sit here and do my thing. And it's yeah. so compelling. Like just the shot of him sitting is so compelling. Okay. Take thy face hence. Just, oh, <laughs> please. So good. Also the scene when he fights uh, Corey Hawkins character, Macduff mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. end, right? And uh, I did not expect the beheading to actually happen. You know? Yeah, yeah Sam. Yeah. Gets beheaded and then the crown like flies off into the distance and it's kind of this beautiful sort of metaphor for what's going on there. Um, yeah. The way it's staged too, I actually didn't notice this mm-hmm. fully or I didn't like register it until a second viewing, but it's like the battle sort of evenly matched. What screws him over is his crown falls off his head and, <laughs> and sort he of in the middle up. of battle, he yeah. goes to put it back on like another <laughs> mm-hmm. moment of this like arrogance of like, well, I'm the King. I should put this on. And that's when yeah. he gets beheaded, which Me I think too. is another great little detail. Also love it's staged in a very like claustrophobic setting too. So they're yeah. like, they're very much like just going back and forth there too. That's just uh man. Corey Hawkins is also very good in this movie. Yeah, he's very good in this yeah. movie. I mean, uh, I got to say there are some parts of Macbeth that are kind of hilarious, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to identify them. <laughs> One of them is like this whole like riddle that the witches give like, "Hey, like, you know, yeah. you're you're not, you're 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 not you're going to be king until this other forest goes to this forest." You know, like and he's like, "Well, that's never going to happen. That's impossible." <laughs> and he's like, and don't worry, you're not going to be killed by somebody that was of woman born. And he's like, mm-hmm. well, that's basically everyone, you know. That's and it's basically like, everyone. It's that's it's kind of like this monkey's yeah. paw esque, like. And by BT dubs, like both of those things happen. <laughs> that, they, I mean, yep. it's it's a dark play, but also I find that stuff pretty hilarious. It's hilarious. It is a great little twist too. Like I remember reading it in high school and thinking that is like that is the coolest <laughs> twist ever. Right, it is ingenious. <laughs> yes. Actually, he was the original M Night Shyamalan. Exactly, um, exactly. Shakespeare was, and then uh, there is also the scene where I, Ross, I think, goes to uh, Macduff, and he's like, "Yes, like your wife and kid were fine when I last saw them. <laughs> totally fine." Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, there's like a. My wife was saying there's a doctor in Arrested Development who like would give like stuff that was only yes. technically correct. Mm-hmm. He's like, your son was, your son is going to be all right. And he's like, Oh, thank God. And it's like, I mean, he lost his left arm, so he's going to be all right. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's kind of that he's like, yes, yeah. they were breathing fine when I last saw them. Even that, though that a minute later, scene, that whole scene is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. A later, a minute later, he's like, yeah, they're all dead. Yeah. All of them. <laughs> yeah. Kids too? yeah. The kids, all of them, all yeah. of them all dead. And uh, he, he took like no breath between the lie and the reality. It's, it's, just, like, it's yeah. like you could this could have come to my attention 30 seconds ago yeah. you know when you were telling me they're fine lead with that yeah, yeah maybe yeah lead with the bad news maybe um i think so. you're not wrong that there is something sort of <laughs> ridiculous about Macbeth. like it oh it's just the plot kicks off because the guy's just like walking home from work and some <laughs> witches are like hey you're gonna be king and he's like oh cool i should kill cool. everyone cool. i know right now like yeah. immediately yeah. that's what i should do i kind of like like Macbeth goes hard this is yes. it just like jumps right in the way i don't know i the way i was always taught about like the origin of this play was basically just that king james of scotland had newly become king james of england and just like liked mystical witch shit and so shakespeare was like cool i'll just write a scottish mystical witch play for you to like please you (laughs) and i feel like you can kind of feel that coming through but in kind of a fun way like yeah just a story of some witches just like making this guy ruin his own life for really no reason (laughs) yeah for no reason like nothing they don't 
they don't threaten him. You know what I mean? They don't they don't say you must do this or else we'll kill no. someone. You know, they're just like, hey, BT yeah. dubs, here's some stuff that's gonna happen. Yeah. It, right, it, right, it right, right. My best friend, the king. Yeah. The king is like, write me some witch fic, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and Shakespeare's <laughs> like, sure, sure. And the king is like, witches do be like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they do mess around with our lives for no reason. Yeah. Yes, yes. This is the ultimate fuck around and find out story. Um, mm-hmm. but it it is kind of yeah. It actually kind of reminds me of um, sort of modern day time travel movies where, uh, like the time machine becomes like a a monster or like or basically like the future prophecy that needs to be fulfilled ends up being mm-hmm. some kind of like monstrous trap. Um, the the best example I can think of right now is like time crimes. You know where like this guy is like needing to like really harm people and himself in order to fulfill what he believes needs to happen you know um this is kind of one of the original the og version of that you know the og Mm -hmm. time crimes is like they tell him the future and he's like well i gotta do it now i gotta do it now um i want to point out as we as we wrap up here a couple of the sort of um decisions that uh this movie makes regarding some big classic monologues right um, so one of the classic monologues that I referenced in my opening, uh, of the podcast is, is this a dagger I see before me? Come let me clutch thee. Right. And the idea behind that scene is that he is seeing an actual dagger in front of him. Uh, and he's like imagining a dagger. Right. And, uh, I thought that was interesting that basically what we discover in this movie is that they made the door handles like daggers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> as, he, like, as he's walking down the world's yeah. longest hallway. Too. Yeah, like one of the longest the, hallways ever. The like runway from Fast and Furious uh, as a hallway. <laughs> He's just yes. going, yeah, forever on <laughs> that. Fast and Furious Six, right? Yeah, yeah. it's um, and I was just like, oh, that's kind of cl- kind of a clever way to do that. Kind of a clever way to do it is like make the door handle like the like the like the. It's a little bit literal, but it's also like, yeah, oh, that's cool. That's cool. That, that, that was something where I was like, okay, Joel Cohen. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I, I see what you're doing. You're having fun here. And then there's a scene like the double double toil and trouble scene, which is just like, holy shit. That well, is, when they made yeah. like he's like sitting in like a pool yes. of soup basically yes. yeah that was like it's just like oh so man cool. that, that yeah. is a pure horror movie sequence too and he like he picks up the head and is just talking to it. like it is such a both a imaginative and really playful interpretation of that scene which we have seen time and time again you know like that is cliche at this point but no there's no cauldron it's just like you know, what do you imagine sure yeah. Um, also, the out damn spot was kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Mm-hmm. I thought her, Frances McDormand's performance was really excellent there. She's clearly like deteriorating, and uh, the idea is that she has like has like stains on her shirt, right? Like in the in the play, when I read that scene, I always imagined she she'd have like stains on her shirt, or she, I thought she it was would her hands. That that was me, but I don't know. yeah, yeah. Well, it's, but whatever the case, it was like it was water. Like in the in the movie, it was water that she had, which I was just like, huh, kind of interesting. What what did you make of that, Caroline? Did you appreciate some of these kind of like interesting choices, or were there any other decisions that you felt like were really bang on? Well, in general, I I do really like the way they sort of interpreted the magical elements of the movie, which I think, like you're saying, with the dagger and even with the out out damn spot, are they are like literal. Like there's both the literal explanation and the the sort of magical explanation, and the movie will sort of let you. You know, you can choose which one you want to believe, but like the Banquo's ghost sequence, like we're, they do something where like, sometimes he's, we're seeing the ghost, sometimes we're seeing nothing. And sometimes we're seeing this crow, which mm-hmm. is also a symbol of the witches. And, and you're sort of left to wonder which one of these things 
you know, what's actually going on there. But I think the magic in general, and like, again, we cannot overstate the witches in particular in Catherine Hunter's performance, like this fascinating, like contortionist and like crow inspired performance. She's one person, but sometimes she's three people. Like, I mean, if you hate everything else about this movie, you should watch it for the witches alone because it is, they're just so compellingly done. It is one of the most vivid interpretations of the witches. I mean, just the first scene when she shows up and then there's like two witches in the reflection of the water. It's Mm -hmm. like, this is incredible. And by the way, you know, if you ever go back to visit the, revisit the Kurtzel version, Caroline, Mm -hmm. uh, the witches are really lame in that version. <laughs> and so Only just com- comparatively, it's like they are one of the most prominent characters in the play. And yeah. the fact that this movie nails the witches in like in a really effective way is a huge triumph. So, so yeah, uh, overall, a lot of things to appreciate about this, this version. There are some weaknesses, I think in the pacing, I think in some of the delivery that Caroline, you've alluded to anything else we want to say about this or shall we wrap it up? I mean, it's just fun to watch Denzel do Shakespeare. I know yes. he's done a lot of it on stage. And he he's done less of it on screen. He was in the Branagh Much Ado, and he's wonderful, not a huge role, but it is just so like such a joy and a gift to watch him as a Macbeth, even if it's maybe a more reserved Macbeth than I've seen before. Like the sort of monotone quality I was talking about, as much as I think occasionally it's a hindrance, it also leads to such cool moments because he's slightly more low key the moments where he does go big are so effective and then the moments when he can rein it in and be really small can be equally effective and yeah i'm just so glad that this performance is like captured forever on that note by the way we should point out that uh yes denzel washington is in the lead and also um this is a this is a very diverse cast and there is a large diversity of accents as well like mm-hmm. they allowed Denzel and Francis McDormand to like use American accents, and Brendan Gleeson has his Irish accent, and uh, Harry Melling and Alex Hassel use English accents, and so there is this kind of. Uh, first of all, I'm very glad they did this. I'm very glad they didn't force Denzel to do a Scottish accent. <laughs> but there's this kind of like it kind of gives it this. Uh, uh, people can debate how effective that is for them. Like I, you know, but for me, I think there is this idea of like. What they're going for is it, it makes the play more universal. Like this is any mm-hmm. anyone could be in any of these roles. You know, is the feeling I get from it. Right? Is that like people from all around the world, people of all different sizes and shapes and colors, they're all in this movie, mm-hmm. and um, and it's a uh, it's just like makes for a very interesting sort of version of the play that that one could argue is more universal, um, potentially more relatable for larger groups of people. So yeah, I, yeah. Th- that is another. Very uh, deliberate decision that they made uh, to to make this movie. So. You know, I saw this movie a couple days after I saw the the finale of Station Eleven, which also features the Shakespeare adaptation of uh, mm-hmm. of Hamlet too. And it's very much like it's interesting. It's interesting that like at the end of the world, this is what people hold on to. But at the same time, like I'm thinking of like we yeah, we kept we keep coming back to this. You know, there is a uh, universality. There is like almost an immortality to Shakespeare's works. It speaks to the human condition and something we can always relate to. So yeah, doing it without the accents, doing it in a way that's a little more, I wouldn't say modernized, but certainly like adapted to where we are right now, technologically, um, so many different things, right? Like this is something people are streaming 
on their TVs, you know, it was captured on high-end digital cameras. Um, so much of it feels so new and fresh. And I feel like that's a big part of like what makes Shakespeare work, but it's still, it's still a good story at the end of the day, right? Like no yes. matter what you add to it, it's still a good story. Still a good story. And the language is still incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are lines in this movie that they have lived for hundreds of years. And there's a reason for that. Um, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, you know, mm-hmm. lines like that, just like, speak so much to uh how people feel to existentialism and things like that that just like there's a reason this this language has stood the test of time and i think that the tragedy of macbeth is a lovely rendition of it a beautiful tribute to this uh this play and ultimately i think very effective so i'm a big fan sounds like you all were as well Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day it's really impressive that joel cohen made a movie um, especially, uh, like the play, the sort of movie had to be shut down due to COVID. Um, so they had to shut down, took a few weeks off and then they came back and I was reading about the making of this and like when they came back, they were still, they didn't even know that much about COVID at the time. Like they still thought it could be transmitted by touch, you know, during mm-hmm. when they were filming this. So it's just like, you can imagine how difficult it was to make, um, during that time period, but I'm, I'm really glad they got it done. So that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the film cast. Uh, you can find more episodes of the show at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from Tim McEwen, whose newest project is Varsity Blue. You can check him out right now at the midnight. Our weekly plugs bumper comes from Noah Ross. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker and YouTuber Kyle Corwith. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Uh, I want to thank Caroline Sita again for joining us today. Uh, be sure to check out Caroline's podcast, Roll Calling, R-O-L-E Calling, Caroline, thanks a lot for stepping in and uh, showing your theater kid roots for our review of The Tragedy <laughs> of Macbeth. I really appreciate it. Anytime. It's always a, a blast to be here. Okay, so the next few weeks are weird, guys. I'm going to put that out there. Um, there is not much going on in the theaters until uh, February 4th, I think, which is when... Uh, jackass forever comes out and what everyone's waiting for right before my birthday jackass forever yes yeah a nice nice uh, reference to the birthday slipped in there but yeah it's like even if we did review jackass forever which i'm not sure we will (laughs) it's like not necessarily a movie you can have a deep conversation about you know that that would be the ultimate like jackass stunt though like (laughs) the guys brave a pandemic to review jackass so We're kind of uh, in the middle of uh, debating what exactly we should watch for next week. But our current plan is to review Station Eleven uh, on next week's episode of the podcast. So I do think it is a really ambitious work that uh, deserves a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. And so we hope you will join us in catching up to Station Eleven. You can stream all 10 episodes now on HBO Max. And we are going to plan to discuss it in depth as our main review on next week's episode of the podcast. Um, there are other things that like might come out on video on demand in the near future uh, that may compete for our attention, you know. Uh, and we will debate them in turn and kind of figure it out. But it's it's just a weird time right now. We're not really going into theaters, and also mm-hmm. even if we were, there's not much coming out in theaters right yeah. now. I so, really want to talk about Scream, but we that'll be a VOD. Thing, oh yes, definitely. No, yeah. uh, we will talk about Scream, you know. Yeah. But it's just. Um, Probably, you know, whenever it comes out of video demand, which is probably going to be in like five weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also very likely going to be a, st- a Scream retrospective 
probably as an After Dark. So that's something we're planning on as well. But just like we just don't know enough information about when Stream Scream is going to be on video on demand yet. And so we can't plan around it. So we appreciate your patience. But yes, next week, conversation about Station Eleven. Look forward to that on the Filmcast. Until then, thanks for listening. We'll see you later. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.